Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. On today's episode, Sean and I talked to violinist, educator, and arranger Zacharias Grafilo about his group, the Alexander String Quartet, the unique challenges of arranging for such a group, and how teaching classical music has changed in our tech-focused era. Well, welcome to the show, Zach. It's good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, uh, if you want to just tell us your name for the record and your preferred pronouns, and then a little description of uh, of, of yourself and your work, however you'd like to be written up. I'm Zach Grafilo. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and um, I'm the first finalist of the Alexander String Quartet. Um, I also teach at San Francisco State uh, University. I teach chamber music and violin, obviously, and I also do a little conducting for the orchestra there. This year, I'm also one of the coaches for the pre-college division at San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Um, So I'm only doing chamber chamber music coaching there, but um, very passionate about chamber music, obviously, string quartets in particular. And over the last several years, I've been doing a lot of arranging for, for my group, the Alexander String Quartet, mostly for string quartet only, but um, within the last year or two, I've been doing a lot of work uh, for string quartet and voice, specifically for mezzo-soprano. And I'm assuming we're going to talk a little bit about some of those projects and maybe a couple of the future projects that we have in mind as well. Yeah. Um we were thinking the focus of of this conversation would be on that arranging specifically and and uh, that that work that you're doing. So if you want to just start by telling us a little bit about that group, um, the Alexander String Quartet. Um, yeah, I'm. Let's see. This is I think my twentieth season with the Alexander String Quartet. I was a big fan of the quartet before I joined the quartet. Um, Alexander's came out to the West Coast in about. 1989-1990. They're originally based in primarily New York City, but they were up and down um, the East Coast. They had members uh, as far south as Philadelphia and as far north as um, New Haven. But they started, the quartet started in 1981. And in 1988-89, they were asked uh, by San Francisco State, specifically the Morrison Chamber Music Center at San Francisco State to be their quartet in residence and to teach their chamber music program there and also direct their chamber music program and also um, direct their uh, applied... Actually, they they didn't teach right away their applied instruments. I think it wasn't until three or four years later that they began teaching there. Anyway, I was... I was still in middle school when they first came out to uh, the West Coast, but I, I heard about them and I was a huge fan. And then it wasn't until 2002 that I joined the Alexander Quartet. And it was funny because I, I had done some arranging um, in high school and through college, um, mainly because a lot of the string quartet arrangements that were out there were horrible. Terrible. Just <laughs> and, worse. God. Yes. And I thought, you know, I could probably do uh, a lot better than what's out there at the time. Uh, it's gotten a lot better since then. But at the time, there really wasn't a lot of good 
um, string quartet arrangements of things. So I just ended up doing stuff on my own. Fast forward a few years when I joined the Alexander Quartet, we were actually recording the entire cycle of Shostakovich string quartets, all 15 quartets, plus the piano quintet. And we were talking about filling out the package of recordings with some additional material. And not not to say that 15 string quartets wasn't enough <laughs> material to record, but um, we were kind of looking at the timings for each record. We were thinking, you know, maybe we could we could have a one or two little ditties to add on to, to these things. And we were listening to a, a recording of a colleague of ours. His name is Roger Woodward. He's a pianist, Australian pianist, who's actually on faculty at San Francisco State as well. And um, he had a recording from the early 70s of the Shostakovich Preludes and Fugues. And he had given us a, a, a bootleg copy of, because at that point it was out of print, and he, he gave us a, a bootleg copy of his recording, and phenomenal. Just blew us away. And we were on, I remember... <laughs> being on the road with the guys, we were listening to this recording in the car and we literally almost drove off the road listening to these, <laughs> these recordings. And the guys knew that I had done some arranging in the past and they were like, Hey Zach, what do you, what do you think about arranging some of these for string quartet? And I was like, I think it'd be a great idea. So I arranged four of them that we recorded and put on the albums um, in our collection of Shostakovich uh, quartets. And it was a, wonderful opportunity for me because I never had, this was my first recorded arrangements um, for string quartet. And I'd never had any of my, my arrangements recorded before, but that was the beginning of me arranging. And they've called on me (laughs) several times (laughs) since to make, to make arrangements. I've done some Brahms. Uh, Most recently I've done some Mahler. That's the the latest recording with voice that I've done uh, three cycles of Mahler and, I also have some arrangements of Wagner and um, Strauss, actually, that hasn't been recorded yet, but we have performed those arrangements as well. So as somebody who is um, very much an outsider to this world, um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you say that arrangements for string quartet are usually pretty terrible, um, is there like... Is there a, a clear reason why that is, or is it just something that doesn't get a whole lot of uh, attention? You know, I don't know. I I'm not sure why they're so bad. It shouldn't <laughs> be that hard, it, right? It shouldn't be that difficult. However, you know, writing for string quartet isn't easy. I mean, I think uh, there was a there's a reason why Brahms destroyed close to twenty string quartets before <laughs> he he actually published his first set of, of two string quartets. Uh, and, you know, for for Brahms, it was mo- mainly because he had the Tramp of Giants behind him, um, more specifically Beethoven, mm-hmm. who wrote 16 string quartets that pretty much defined string, string quartets. quartets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So everybody that wrote string quartets after that, you know, had his stamp. Uh, you know, you needed to, to pass that test of Beethoven before uh, you could be accepted. It shouldn't be that difficult, but it is difficult. Um, and I think also arrangements, you know, if you think about, you know, the countless gigs and weddings and bar mitzvahs and parties and whatnot. Oh, that God. <laughs> we've all in our youth have been engaged to play for. A lot of times 
bridezillas would ask us to, you know, <laughs> arrange pieces for their wedding, their dream wedding. And sometimes there are pieces that aren't really appropriate for string quartet. Um, I remember playing a, a gig one time and they really wanted Cool in the Gang for, <laughs> for their reception <laughs> arranged for string quartet. And, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn down any challenge really. And, I, you know, I've, I've done some arrangements, hack arrangements that fulfill the request, but I wouldn't necessarily be that proud of it. But yeah, I, I'm not quite sure why, you know, even, even uh, classical standards, why that wouldn't, why, that, why there are so many bad arrangements. I feel like, um, like one of the things I really got to do at UC Davis was like all these burgeoning, very in their nascent stages, um, composers would like throw things at you and be like, this makes sense for the violin, right? And you're like, oh God, no, this is just, <laughs> no, this is not how the instrument works. And I feel like a lot of time people write things about understanding the instruments and what feels like an acceptable thing to play on said instrument right but in many ways sonically it feels like a string quartet shouldn't be that hard it covers such a large range all the instruments are balanced enough equal enough with a similar timbre it should all just work for many things but but yet right and, they, and a lot of times they do. I think you have composers that are either on one end of the spectrum or the other. Either they're really afraid to ask if mm-hmm. things would necessarily work or they're like, they think they know. And they're like, oh, yeah, this should work. You should have a work. problem with this. Yeah, make it work. <laughs> so, yeah, it's and f- for us, for the Alexander String Quartet, we we sort of champion new music and we we sort of champion uh new composers or even young composers. Um, and we try to encourage them to write whatever suits them and hopefully we can play it. And if we can't play it, at least you're, you're there, you're a phone call or an email away where we can ask, did this, is this really what you meant? Or did you really mean X, Y, or Z, you know? So at least we can have that dialogue. We can't really have that dialogue with Beethoven or, or Brahms. <laughs> It makes it a completely different experience to have uh, that immediate feedback. It sure does. So is most of your arrangement work based on kind of request and or this year we're doing all of Brahms. So here, do some cool Brahms stuff. Um, yes and no. Um, most of the mo- most of the recent arrangements that I've done for string quartet have been actual like commissions. So the Mahler cycle, the three Mahler cycles that we did with mezzo-soprano Kendra Shark was a commission by a local group called A Leader Alive, and they specialize their material concerts and recordings and, and whatnot on German songs. So it made total sense uh, when they approached me and said, and it wasn't just the Mahler that they had requested. The, the Mahler was kind of the, the focal point of all of the arrangements. They came to me and asked if I'd be interested in this collaboration with Kendra. Um, she was very specific. She's She's been a good close friend of the quartets for many years. Wonderful soprano and wonderful musician. A real The way I describe it is her integration in, into the group is like another 
voice of the quartet, literally. Um, she's a fifth member when she she sings with us. Her her lines kind of weave in and out. It's not voice and then accompaniment. It's like a, another member of the ensemble. So they approached me and said, you know, we'd like you to to um, do some arrangements. Wagner was was the number one request, and then Mahler was number two. The three cycles that I did you know, made total sense um, in terms of range and timbre and the way things were written originally. So I thought, you know, this would be great to do. And what was also kind of fitting for us is we don't, as a string quartet, we don't get to play a lot of Mahler. There, there were no string quartets, no string quartets written by Mahler. Not a lot of, not a lot of, not a lot of chamber music, except for maybe the piano quartet. So it gave us a chance to play Mahler Again, for, for, for most of us, we've, we played in orchestras in a previous career before string quartets be, took over our lives. <laughs> so, you know, that music, we don't get to, to play it so much. Same thing with Wagner. We don't get to play a lot of Wagner. Same thing with Strauss. I love Strauss. But that was kind of the last request that was made to make an arrangement of. This was the, um, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of um, Four Last Songs by um, Richard Strauss huge huge orchestration instrumentation and that was a super duper challenge uh for me because i was like how am i going to reduce the accompaniment or the orchestral part from four last songs by strauss to a string quartet and it, that was somewhat of a challenge for the Mahler as well originally for for a, a lot of the Mahler that i arranged it was originally for orchestra but then he he also very, very dense, um, very, very colorful use of instruments, instrumentation. But then he also did an arrangement for most of the songs for piano and voice. So the challenge for me when I was arranging Mahler was finding a happy medium between the piano version and the or- orchestral version. And for most of my arrangements prior to uh, doing any of this for string quartet and voice, I had basically just pilfered the piano repertoire right. and just basically four voices, four voices yeah. and just, you know, exploded the score and it made a lot of sense. In this instance, when I was dealing with Mahler, I was trying to find a happy medium between the colors of the orchestration and the intimacy of the piano, piano version and finding some kind of happy medium in between. So in, in a sense, I was creating something completely new that we had never heard before. So that was a that was a new challenge for me because I wanted to create some of the colors that I you would hear and a lot of audiences are used to hearing from the orchestral version but also creating this intimate dialogue between the voice and the um, the other voices. Right, cuz when I think of Mahler I think of just this like thick like string section, just right. sweeping lines that just kind of never end. Right. Um, but then you also have to accompany a voice and like make all these other moving parts work in all that context. So I'm curious in that case, it, it sounds to me like the challenge is really to sort of maintain some level of, of the original piece, right? Like Like the feeling of it or the energy of it whatever combination of both. So if if you are sitting down with a piece written for orchestra and and whether you have 
that arrangement for piano or not? Like, are you specifically trying to like consciously maintain all of those things or, or do you allow yourself to um, sort of approach it as for lack of a better term, like making something new? Is there some, is it some combination of the two? Yeah, it's a good question. It was a, like I said, it was a challenge for me to figure out what that process was going to be. And I, and I think because I had two different versions, the larger orchestral version and the smaller intimate piano version, half of me was going one way and half of me was going the other. And I found myself like, you know, in, in the middle of one song and just like completely full stop going, this is not working. I'm trying to do one thing while still kind of having an ear on the other. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to just basically create something new. I'm going to create a new overall experience with elements of both. Once I kind of accepted that that was going to be my approach, it, it came a lot easier for me. Except I kept on you know, stubbing my toes on trying to be faithful to the original, trying to be faithful to the arrangement, the piano arrangement, and not quite living in both worlds at the same time. And it, it created way too much conflict as an arranger because I couldn't quite, you know, grasp the whole, the bigger picture, I guess you could say. And then when I was arranging Strauss, which like how I said earlier, is such a huge instrumentation and such a huge score, I was like, I, I just can't do all of this. It just, it's impossible. No matter how much Devisi and no matter how much double stopping I have the strings do, it's just not going to work. Um, so what I ended up deciding in the end was I would sit down with several recordings for each one of the four songs. And I would just kind of and I would have the full score in front of me and I would block out which parts I, I could seriously perceive through my ears as I'm listening to the recording, because there's, it's impossible to hear every single little sure. detail. Sean, you're talking about dense and thick. Strauss is even more right. dense and more thick than, than Mahler is. And there's just a lot going on. So I, I was like, okay, what am I actually hearing when I'm listening to this passage? It's this voice, this voice, this voice, and this voice. Well, that's what's going to go in, into the arrangement. And in the end, you know, you have to make accommodations. But, you know, if you're, if you're just kind of getting the overall shape and the overall color um i think it's it's um not the same thing but i think i just kind of um accepted the fact that this is something that i was creating it was something completely new it's a completely different experience and the response i got and i was a little bit concerned about it when i when we first started performing these cycles i was really nervous about how people would respond to this because it, it's not the orchestral, it's not the piano version. And a lot of the concert goers were very well versed in all of this music. They, they had their favorite performances, live performances, recorded performances. And then here, here I am offering up something completely new and completely different. But overall, I think they got the concept. They understood that this wasn't just a you know a condensed version of the orchestral. They recognized that this was something new, something different. And the biggest compliment that I was getting from some folks was they, they would tell me, Zach, I could I could see how Mahler could have 
written something like this. I could see how Strauss or Wagner could have written something like this for this instrumentation. It, it totally falls in line with what they would consider that particular composer. And that's something that I'm consciously trying to do. I'm trying to channel my best Mahler, my, my best Brahms through the workings of what's good string writing, what's in the style of that particular composer. I wouldn't necessarily arrange something by Brahms the same way that I would arrange something by Shostakovich, for instance. So in, in that sense, that's where my artistry, I guess, as an arranger kind of comes through. So hopefully I'm not offending too many people with my <laughs> arrangements. <laughs> but I loved hearing about that kind of like perceiving, like listening to those Strauss recordings and like basically taking the the perception or the like listen, quote unquote listener experience as you're writing it. Right. And I feel like that's like, be learning classical music in this day and age, like the curse and blessing of there's so many recordings out there so available for you that right. right everyone has their favorite version of XYZ standard, but also everyone has their favorite version. <laughs> the expectations to live up to. Of course. That it, it goes the same way for just live performance too. Uh, I don't know how many performances that I've performed with the quartet where I've had someone, uh, you know, an avid chamber music goer, not only just a, someone who goes to concerts, but our amateur chamber musicians that come up to me and, you know, they have these, we have these long conversations about their favorite recording of that particular piece that I just played. And, I mean, they talked to me about Boeing's. They're like, Oh, I nerd. noticed I, a total nerd moments. I mean, it's like, Oh, you know, I'm talking about playing uh, Beethoven's uh, Opus 18, number one, second movement. And I, I had someone come up to me and says, oh, I, I saw your, your Boeing at the beginning of that movement. And, you know, I always kind of wondered how people played that note so long, but you just, you know, changed the bow in the middle of the note. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what else am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, is that what they do in the Guarneri recording? Is that what Arnold Steinhardt? I was like, I have no idea. We no. should probably ask him. But... <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him to just change the bow because it's a long note, <laughs> you know? But the, these are the things that they, they, they listen for, they look for, and they, they nerd out on. And, you know, I, I kind of nerd out on that stuff too. Before I was a professional string quartet player, I listened to so many recordings. Um, I tell my students this at the university, you know, we, when I was in school, we had to go to the listening lab, put down an LP on a record player, put on these crusty earphones and listen to them. I mean, I would do that two or three times a week. I'd go to listening lab and just listen to recordings. That was part of my education. Um, that's how we learned. But like now, nowadays we have YouTube and Spotify and all kinds of so many things at our fingertips. It, it's amazing how many recordings and videos and so much media we have at our fingertips that I think we just kind of, a lot of, a lot of our, my students just kind of, uh, take for granted. Whereas when I was a student, I had to go someplace to actually listen to something. <laughs> and, right. and, you know, it was kind of based, the quality of, of the recordings was based on the catalog of that particular library that I was in. I have to say my first like memory of string quartet music was, I don't know who gave it to me. Was it my family doctor? I think it was my family doctor who gave me ASQ's Beethoven anthology. Oh, no. <laughs> So, thank you. <laughs> I think it's my standard for the the Beethoven string quartet. Well, 
a little biased. I have to ask. I have to ask if you remember which version it was because they had recorded a right. version of the Beethoven cycle before I joined the quartet, right. and then a few years after I joined the quartet. So, who who knows which version that was? I think it's on the cusp. I was pretty young. I'll fact check it. It's hiding you're, somewhere you're, in my family. You're going to you're gonna have to look it up now, Sean. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll get back to you about it. I'll text we'll that. Add, we'll add an addendum if uh, we have to clarify if that was your version. There you go. <laughs> it um, wasn't Zach's version, but I really like Zach's version. I promise. <laughs> the version I think of is not his, but. So do you teach uh, specifically for ranging? Is that part of what part of what you do? Surprisingly, no. I have never taught a class on arranging. I've I've spoken to young composers and not necessarily composers, but just uh, students of music about arranging. I think I I obviously have a, a slight advantage being a string player. I and being a string quartet player, I really know what works and what doesn't work. I um, for string quartet. I think I've. I've been thrown, I've been given every possible request <laughs> and uh, technique um, there is possibly for string quartet, not just by young or, or new composers, but even innovative com- composers of the past, like, you know, like George Crumb or Elliot Carter or, you know, even, even Shostakovich and Beethoven, they, they all pushed the envelope of what was possible like for, for Beethoven, for, for instance, he didn't really care. He didn't really care what was possible, what wasn't possible. He knew what was possible, and, and he was uh, constantly challenging musicians of the time. And, and they would even say, this is not music. This is unplayable. And he, he simply replied, Play I don't care. <laughs> Play it. Make it happen. That was, that was his thing. And then, you know, there have been composers that have tried to push the envelope, knowing, not not knowing for sure if it was practical, but knowing that it was playable. Like, for instance, Bartok uh, definitely was, was pushing the envelope, not just in terms of technique, but in terms of um, playability, in terms of tempo, which is <laughs> constantly a challenge. I remember recording the, the Bartok cycle, and the four of us were almost, you know, literally fighting each other at the uh, recording because it was just so difficult. I mean, I think for me, I was trying to get as close to the Bartok tempos as we could, but it's difficult. It's so, so difficult. So it's challenging. From that experience, I do have a a slight advantage whenever I am arranging. Now I, I'm never going to (laughs) say I'm probably, I'm pretty confident that never is, is pretty accurate. I'm never going to say that I'm a composer because I, I don't compose. It's a very, very different thing. I, I enjoy using other people's material and other people's genius and shaping it to fit for string quartet. I think, I think there's, there are other kinds of challenges with that process. But yeah, I haven't really taught arranging or had a class or anything like that. I think it's, it's mainly just kind of, this is what I would do in this particular situation look what I've done in this arrangement. And then they would often ask me questions like, why did you put that tune in that voice versus this voice? And sometimes it's like, well, that's kind of how I heard it in my head. (laughs) Or 
when I was doing the arrangement, uh, I was sitting on a plane going from here to New York and, you know, it made sense to put it there because I don't know, I was, the light shined off of the window <laughs> a certain way. And, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things that sometimes it's, there's an accident that happens and it's like, Oh, I, I found some mistakes uh, after the fact in some of the Shostakovich uh, arrangements. And I know it was because um, I might've been arranging on the plane and my mouse moved or something. And some, some notes got transposed in the wrong place. And I didn't find it until way later, <laughs> but it doesn't sound bad. I, I corrected it and we played it and I'm like, I don't like the way that sounds. That doesn't sound that good. <laughs> <laughs> so, in you know, a way, that sort of becomes part of the piece then is, right. Know, is Ex- it actually exactly. a mistake or not? You know, exactly. And we've performed it so many times that way. We recorded it that way. Of course we, we can't hear it any other way. It, it has to be that way. So when you're arranging, do you ever, are you also ever specifically thinking about the players you play with ASQ, right? Since you're so intrinsically, it's so intrinsically part of what you're doing. I, I don't know if I'm that, particularly thinking about them uh-huh. i'm more thinking about myself <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 mainly because i'm i'm looking at what i'm giving myself and i'm going crap i'm gonna have to play this eventually <laughs> right i haven't quite said no i don't want to play that i'm gonna give it to to somebody else i haven't done that yet but i've i've often stopped myself in the middle of doing writing something out going oh man this is gonna be really difficult for me but then that's about it. Then I'm, I, I'm like, okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm going to have to deal with it eventually. So I've never, I haven't really quite thought about who I'm giving it to necessarily. Cause I, in my mind, I know that the guys can play anything. You included. No matter, no, yeah, I guess me included. That, that's probably why I'm, I, I don't like try to transpose it into an, an easier key or whatnot. I, I keep it pretty uh, original and I have gotten comments and curses from my colleagues after I have delivered the music to them. There's been some cello lines that I know Sandy has, <laughs> or still continues to curse me every time we play that particular arrangement. And I say, and I always tell them, it's like, hey, don't blame me, blame Brahms or blame Mahler. It's not my fault. <laughs> That's, this is why I don't compose. <laughs> Speaking of difficulties, you were texting me earlier about a set of arrangements that you just don't like that you've done. Right. T- complain about them. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm trying to remember how long ago this was. I think this was, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at the album. So this was a project that the Alexander Quartet did with the San Francisco Choral Artists in 2011. And the entire album was commissions. So it was, there were all commissions by different composers, four string quartet, and, and in this case, for chamber chorus. San Francisco Choral Artists, I think it's like 24, a 24 voice uh, chamber chorus. And the director of the chorus, uh, Megan Solomon, she heard the Alexander String Quartet a few years prior to the recording project, and she heard my arrangement of the Brahms Intermezzo, Opus 118, number two. And she was just like, blown away by this arrangement and she was so complimentary and she said you know i we have some funding we want to do a project with with you and the quartet 
would you be interested in doing something? I'm like, sure, I'd love to. But she, she also had a very specific piece in mind. And the piece that she wanted to do was, it's called the Brahms Four Quartets, Opus 92. And this is for piano and chamber chorus. And she knew that I had arranged, obviously, the intermezzo, which is originally for piano, for string quartet. And she's like, could you arrange this for chorus? And I didn't say yes right away. I sat on it for a couple of weeks. I listened. I, I didn't know this piece. And I, I listened to the recording and I was like, oh, man, this is going to be hard. And it, it wasn't so much that it was just difficult to arrange. It's it, whenever I'm I'm looking at a piece to arrange for string quartet, I'm looking at whether or not the original is very pianistic in its concept. You know, if there's a lot of arpeggios and stuff or a lot of big, big chords that aren't doubled, I think it's it makes it difficult to translate that to strings. And there was a lot of that kind of thing. There's a lot of arpeggiation. There's a, there was a lot of range that I wasn't quite sure how I was going to manage. And I had a couple of meetings with her afterwards and she's like, no, I, I think you can do it. I think you'll, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it, Zach. You'll love it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. And I, you know, I, I made the arrangement and we started rehearsing and it, it was, it was fine, <laughs> but I wasn't personally like happy with it, I guess you could say. And even when we were recording it, we were, she wanted to make some adjustments. I wanted to make some adjustments. This was during the actual recording session. And, it, you know, we were we were adjusting things. We were making uh, changes as we were going along, which was fine. But in the end, I wasn't as happy as I was with, say, the intermezzo. The intermezzo, I spent a long time on it. I, I really wanted to make sure that it was as perfect as I possibly could be because it was a piece that I knew everybody knew. It was either a piece that somebody had played or somebody had heard. This was a piece that everybody knows. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't ruin it, basically, <laughs> um, so that I didn't have pianists, uh, you know, with pitchforks after the concert, you know, <laughs> wanting to string me up because I committed blasphemy on on a Brahms work that, it, you know, it was everybody's beloved piece. And I, I again, this is one of those situations where, for the most part, a lot of pianists have been like, I haven't heard um, that intermezzo like that ever. And I'm, you know, I, I want to be able to play it like that string arrangement on the piano. But I think that's the Brahms's genius more than mine. I think it is a, the most beautiful piece ever written. And I'm glad I was able to have a hand at it for string quartet. But yeah, that the Brahms quartet, Opus 92, wasn't one of my most favorite experiences as an arranger. I just didn't feel like it it came across in the right way. I I mean, I think the recording is fine. I think it, it's an it's a nice piece for string quartet and chorus. And I think it comes across okay, but I I'm personally I'm not as satisfied with it as as I would be with some of the other things that I've arranged for string quartet. Yeah, in my mind like the the like textures it feels like that would be one of the hardest things because the piano is a very is a, essentially a percussive, percussive instrument instrument which i've learned so much more about now that i'm taking piano lessons i'm like you just don't you just stop holding the note okay this is blasphemy for a string player <laughs> right and just 
like you can be percussive with a string instrument, but it's just a different kind of percussive. Right. And I feel like the timbre and texture of a voice in a string instrument are maybe too close in functionally, right? The piano is supposed to be some sort of framework that a chorus sits on top of. So, right. You know, I tried to accommodate some of those things. The per- percussive aspect of, of the piano is something that is, is probably one of the biggest challenges. And, you know, I, I experienced something similar with Mahler and Strauss when I had to deal with harp lines. Some of that stuff can be, yeah, you, yeah. Um, some of that you can kind of simulate with multiple instruments doing arpeggiated lines at the same time, but it's not the same thing and you don't get, you don't get the same kind of impact. So that's something that you, I had to kind of come to terms with or create a similar kind of gesture without trying to be note for note, the same exact same thing that that's probably the biggest challenge when you're, when you're trying to arrange something for string quartet that originated in another instrument that's not kind of in the same family. That was part of my challenges with that particular arrangement. I've imagined that it, arranging it just just as an artist who works in a number of different mediums, you know, there there is always this sense when you sort of adapt any work that came before it, there's that sense of like having to balance no matter what the the medium is that you're working in having to balance like the feeling of the original piece or like the expectation that people bring to that piece right who have a history of it and and that connection to it and injecting something if not your own at least something fresh or or giving it some reason to be updated right or to be adapted and i i feel like since starting this podcast and and working with Sean, I've I've spoken to more people in classical music than I have ever in my life previous to this, <laughs> and and it it strikes me because there's a and I don't know if this is entirely just me being outside of it, so I'm I'm interested to kind of hear um, from you on this, but like there is a intellectual level to classical music that it that has always felt sort of not unique but specific to it, right? Like on top of this sort of personal connection that you have to any kind of music, there's also like that intellectual, like higher minded sort of approach to it, or at least that feeling around it. And how much of that is just, you know, sort of pomp and how much of that is actually existing is, is there's some, probably some room for debate there, but I'm, I'm curious if that plays into your approach to arranging these things too. Like, are you thinking about it from, an intellectual standpoint or, or are you able to approach it entirely from a creative standpoint and sort of the rest of that kind of follows? Good question. I think there's two sides of the, two sides of the coin there, right? I mean, intellect can also connote, you know, a little bit of elitism when you're talking about classical music, which makes it somewhat unapproachable for, you know, mainstream in a lot of ways. If you don't know anything about classical, you shouldn't be listening to it, that kind of thing. And that's something that I feel my group, the Alexander String Quartet, tries to break down that barrier. Um, we, we give a lot of adult education classes, presentations, not just to adults, but also to younger people. 
um, that might not be exposed to classical music to break down that barrier. And when, whenever we do these kinds of presenta- presentations, we're not dressed up in our tuxedos or suits or it's not a stuffy kind of a, an atmosphere that we're trying to create on stage. It's, it's a very open and welcoming kind of atmosphere that we're trying to create, not overly intellectualized, not to say that we won't talk about what might be considered intellectual, but I mean, and it's, I, I think that there's something very human about this art form that we continue to revisit there's something hum- very human about Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn and what they were trying to say about the human condition, about what we're feeling, about relationships, about communication. I don't think that's something that has anything to do with intellect or class or anything else. And I guess if, if any of this plays a role in, in arranging, I don't think it does. And I teach this quite a bit with my own students. I, I think the, the music should speak for itself. I think the content and the, the layers of meaning in this music will touch everyone. Um, and it's very individual. Um, there might be some commonality and, and some, some people might experience similar ideas and similar feelings and similar emotions. But I think that's what makes what we do, what, what makes classical music so important and why we continue to keep peeling that onion. It's because it has so many meanings, so many layers, and it can touch us in so many different ways. So when I'm arranging something, I'm, like how I was saying earlier, I'm trying to channel as much as possible that composer so that I'm not getting in the way of an audience's experience. Zach isn't some sort of filter it's speaking straight through past my arrangement through the instrumentation and the message from composer to audience is going straight through and um, it's not being filtered or blocked or interpreted in any kind of way. I guess it is being interpreted because live, live performance and recorded performance is an interpretation, but the overall message, the overall feeling, the overall emotion, the overall content, is still going to be very individual and it's still going to speak to you whether you like it or not whether it whether it you know it, it means something to you it's going to be very individual too but i think there is something to be said i think that's why we keep having uh performances of mozart brahms beethoven shostakovich you know all of these the greats because there's there's so many many, many ways of experiencing these things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't enjoy other kinds of music either. And I think that's something that the pandemic and teaching over Zoom this past, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 months, has that has taught me. I've been able to share with my students my eclectic tastes, not just in, in, in music, but in film and in all forms of media. And just to share in that experience with with my students and with my colleagues, exposing them to things that they might not have had a chance to experience on both sides. I mean, even for my really serious classical music students, exposing them to Snarky Puppy for the first time yes. and blowing their minds. They're just like, I've never heard anything like this in my entire <laughs> life. Oh, my God. You know, 
or or even you know the the non-classical uh, players experiencing Brahms' first symphony for this first time and having the exact same experience. I've never heard anything like this in my life. Oh my god! And it's it's so gratifying for me to be that conduit to help them you know experience that for the first time. I think that's that's what's so great. On a sort of related note. I'm curious, since you're teaching, and especially now, as, as you're saying, in, in this strange time of Zoom, when all of these things sort of both compress and expand, right? And, mm-hmm. and all of our interests flow to the surface, and, and we're, we're all living in this sort of weird liminal space. Are you finding, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to phrase this question, because for me, like, even, even over the last 10 years between when I began formally studying art in college and began teaching it myself, the way that my students approached art with a capital A, but also just like the act of being creative changed Mm -hmm. so drastically because of the world that they were creating in changed and the world that they grew up in changed. So I'm I'm curious if you're finding, particularly now, like are, are the people who you are teaching now, you're introducing to, to classical music maybe, or, or sort of broadening their horizons in that way, in any measurable way? Like, are they approaching it in a very different way? Are they, do you feel like the mindset is different from when when you would go down to the listening lab and, and put on an LP? Yeah, that's definitely something that I've noticed. It was first kind of like just through the students themselves, like, um, and then kind of comparing my experience as a student to their experience as a student. Because when I when I was when I first started teaching when I first joined the quartet I was you know in my late twenties I wasn't that much older than some of my grad students so I felt like I was closer in age than some of my than my colleagues in the quartet for sure so their experience it, it's it's kind of a weird thing you know it, part part of it has to do with technology like media I already talked about you know the, the availability at our fingertips for media in terms of YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's like a million recordings that we could all just tap into. And at the same time, when you have when you when the market is so saturated like that, there there is no like hunger to try to find find new stuff. I remember growing up and in college going to going to Tower Records or Amoeba Music and, you know, rifling through the catalogs and trying to find new recordings of of stuff, just that hunt and that hunger to try to absorb that material was was always there. I don't find that necessarily the case right now because it's so easy. And then even when I add, when I tell my students to go go listen to a recording of X, Y, and Z, and then they'll go on YouTube and type in what I was asking them to look for, and you know the first three or four things pop up. It might not be that great. And then I'll ask them about it, and I'm like, so did you did you listen to recording? And oh yeah, I would listen to recording. First, and then the second question I asked is, so who was it that you were listening to? And of course, they have no idea. <laughs> and then the third question is, was it any good? And they're like, mm-hmm. I-, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> they have no sense of what is good and what is bad. Not to say that they should, but I mean, they should have some sort of discernible, you know, process that they go through when they're listening. So I feel like in some ways... Um, we've created a generation that doesn't know how to listen, you know, listening to music and being, being able to listen to music is, should be like our 
first skill that we learn as musicians, as musicians at least, being able to hear, being able to tell the difference between one recording versus another. Or if it's a not, if you don't really like this particular interpretation, being able to verbalize and express why you don't particularly like it. And one of the things that I learned from one of my teachers growing up is like, even if there's something that you don't like, pick out something that you do enjoy and grab that and remember that because it's from all of these different moments, the good ones and the bad ones that you can kind of internalize your own interpretation. That's something being able to hear. (laughs) It sounds so funny as a musician I've noticed has definitely changed over the years. And I, bl- I blame that primarily on the ease and the technology. I mean, the other thing is this. We're all in our own little kind of world. I mean, obviously right now we can't go to concerts, but I don't know how many musicians go to concerts anymore, classical musicians at least. And again, that might be also because of we have it at our fingertips. We can experience things live online quite a bit, especially right now might be pre-recorded, but it, it's still kind of a vir- virtual performance. But seeing it happen live, seeing that experience happen in front of you in a real space, in a real room, the acoustics of a room, and being able to hear that and understand how that plays in a role, the interaction between a live performer and its audience, huge, 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 huge. I think that's something that I wish I had also done a little bit more, but it's, it becomes less and less, I feel, or it has become less and less of an experience. And I don't feel like we do it enough. Experience the audience and react from, off of that audience. That connection to the sort of communal experience of, right. of the art. Which hopefully, um, after this, this current era is, is ended, we will have a better appreciation for. Yes. We'll see. I, I certainly will. I miss concerts quite a bit. So much. Uh, oh. I miss everything, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Zach. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you or learn more about the Alexander String Quartet, where can they find both? Um, we we have a website, ASQ. Four.com is our website. Um, you can also find recordings on practically every medium, Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. CDs. CDs. I don't, I don't even know if people, that's another thing, you know, mm. who has a CD player nowadays? Still even do. in your cars. It's not, not really, <laughs> it's kind of hard to find it in the cars nowadays. But yeah, we do still sell CDs. We do sell, we sell them. When we used to have concerts, we sold them at concerts, but we can we still have CDs online that you can purchase through um, our record label. It's called FoghornClassics.com. Well, thanks. Thanks for so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?